0: want to use this as an example for what we're teaching on, and then I want to pass it over to Mark, who's going to uh, be teaching the message today. So I'm going to ask you to start recording this because this is prophetic, and I'm sure you guys would like to uh, hear anything the Holy Spirit might say to you on this. So this will be this will be recorded for you, and we're going to move straight from this right into the message, so it'll be seamless. I woke up this morning, and the phrase um, "God gives grace to the humble" just was on my heart. I've been amazed at the spiritual activity in our church over the last last few weeks in particular. I think we're, we're cresting at a high crest right now that's matching the highest crest maybe we've, we've experienced in the Gathering Place uh, church where the Holy Spirit activity is just all over the place. And I've had encounters. Others have had encounters. And the church services we've been having encounters, uh, unlike we've had in quite a while. And I'll share next week a couple of things that have happened to me that are pretty profound. But I'm hearing some remarkable things. This morning... I woke up with the phrase, God gives grace to the humble. And then I was thinking about you guys. And here's the application point. In a moment, I'm going to have us all stand and just humble ourselves before the Lord. Because how many of you need more grace in your life? More of God's grace poured out in your life? Well, the, the window that God's grace comes through is humility. The Bible says God resists the proud. How many of you want to be resisted by God? Raise your hand. Smart congregation. No hands went up. So we don't want to be resisted. The word resist means to frustrate your position. A lot of times you're trying to get ahead in life and it won't work out because God is resisting you because of your pride. But he gives grace to the humble person. Humility manifests in many different ways. Here's one way. Joel came to me about a year ago and he goes, I hate my boss. I hate...
1: I didn't hate the boss. The boss was good. It was
0: the job. I hate my job. How many of you have hated your job before? Raise your hands. Okay, I'm sorry. We've got to clean that up because this is being recorded. <laughs> boss, if you ever give your life to Jesus, come to the Gathering Place Church. Listen online. I was wrong. He hated his job. He really hated it. I felt, I've felt that way before. Not here, but when I was a businessman in San Diego. Totally burned out. And he came to me. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And we were just talking about it, praying together, and humility was the, was the call of the day. Just be the best employee that company has. Be humble, submit to authority, which is a sign of humility, one of the biggest ones, and just be a great employee. Don't criticize, don't mock, don't, you know, just be a good employee. And he, he's done this from that point until now. And then about a, a month ago, six weeks, Joel told me that something he's dreamed about since he was a kid has been offered to him, uh, which is to be a... A Disney Imagineer is what they call it. Disney Imagineer. I can't, you, I can't explain that. And so through this humility, a door of promotion has opened. So why don't you take just a moment, tell us what the opportunity is, where you're headed, and then we're going to pray and prophesy over you, and then uh, Mark's going to come teach.
1: All right. Well, I'll just make it quick about mine, and then I will hand it over to my – okay. So, yeah, I, I was approached – by Disney, uh, a friend of mine had given, me their, uh, given them my resume and name, and then they came after me and uh, wanted to talk to me about you know a position that's opening up. And I've always thought it would be awesome to be a Disney Imagineer since I was a little kid. And it turns out that this particular group is Walt Disney Imagineering Research and Development, which is this core group that does all of the innovation, invention, and develops all the new technology for Disney, in the world, and it's this core group in Glendale. Uh, Imagineering Headquarters is in Glendale, but R&D is also in Glendale around with, with you know, other Imagineering groups. So um, it's just this huge blessing, and it just came out of the blue. I won't go into all the way God works, but, I mean, the timing and everything, the way it all worked, it was just amazing. So this is all being fed by God. I mean, this is all, yeah you know. And uh, so it is taking us away from San Diego, and we are moving to uh, L.A., uh, we're going to be living in Altadena, and Disney is in Glendale. So I start work two weeks from tomorrow. Wow. So there's going to be a lot happening in the next two weeks. But, that is amazing. Yeah, but God has just been amazing.
0: Parts of it look like God, and parts of it look like Satan. But
2: <laughs> I think the L.A. part is Satan. Okay. No.
1: Yeah. I've spent... I grew up in Fontana, which is, you know, 40, 50 miles, you know, just west, uh, east of L.A. And I don't know, I've just, I've been to L.A. Going, growing up as a kid and everything like that. And I always thought, you know what, L.A. is not a place I want to be. So I spent my entire life kind of getting further and further away from it. Yeah. And now it's God's funny joke to, yeah. to bring me right back. You know what the I told my wife
0: 20 years ago when we got married? She moved out here from Louisiana where everybody has a football field for a front yard. I said, I looked her right in the eyes and said, we will never live in Ramona. That's what I said to her, because that's where the space is. Now I love it. So a lot of times what what looks like something that's unpleasant, if it's God's will, the more you're in it, the the better it gets. And you'll understand why you end up there. But this, to me, was a very clear sign from a pastoral lens I'm looking through of somebody who humbled himself, and the Lord is exalting you in due time. And your influence now for the gospel is exponential exponential so we bless you in the name of jesus mark will you come on up here and and gary and and kathy and and hope let's bless the pvs you guys have been such a blessing to this church you guys have never caused a problem that's a miracle you know that you still yeah. have she says we still have today we, have couple hours left. we still yeah. have today you guys have been such a blessing and we love you we love everybody we just love the ones that don't cause problems the most okay <laughs> Here we go. So let's pray and prophesy over these guys. There's a mic for anybody that has a word, okay? Jesus, God bless you guys.
2: This is, uh, I just want to share something about Rainey that I can remember years and years ago. That she was coming. She. This is just a really good example of being steadfast in the Lord. She knew she was called to be a part of the church. She had this heart's desire, young lady, heart's desire, to find a husband, to be with a man. We prayed with her many, many times. She didn't allow herself to be pushed aside and said, "You know, I need to, I need to get up and leave this church and go find somewhere else where I can find a man." She kept pressing into the things of God, waiting on Him, and He, sh- the man, walked in. That's and beautiful. I just think that's a great testimony of your heart and just a a, a quick thing I'd like to share I remember a few years ago I came and visited Joel at his work and you know saw what he was doing as an engineer amazing stuff but then he you know I've been in a lot of corporate offices I walked into his office and I said Joel I've never seen an office like this he had every wall and the ceiling and the lighting all decorated I said this is like walking into Disneyland you said that and he said that's my heart's desire I just think it's such a blessing. My heart's desire. This
0: is such a beautiful story. God is so God. He's the crier. Yeah.
3: Well, this is really going to make you cry, Joel. I was sitting there looking at you guys, wondering if this was really the Lord's will, and I realized you look like a Disney character. (laughs) So... (laughs) I think you're coming home, buddy. I think you're coming home. <laughs> I echo everything Gary said uh, about your faithfulness in your dream and your desire, but also not running and looking for it, trusting God to bring the right person. And for both of you, he's done that. And what a great marriage you guys have. And You've been, you've been faithful servants. It, it, you, you go find a church up there. If they have any question about who you are, you just have them call us. And you'll end up with big stars all over your heads. So it's been great to know you guys. We love you.
0: So we bless you in the name of Jesus. Jan, will you come on over and let's lay hands. Why don't you lay hands on uh, Rainy and impart some of that joy. We bless you guys. Jan, would you lead us in prayer over these guys as we send them from the gathering place to L.A.?
4: Lord, thank you for the way that you sovereignly brought them to us and that you have deposited so much in us through them. Thank you that you are the Lord that gives us the desires of our heart.
0: Mm, That is so good.
4: Thank you, Lord, for the sovereign way that you want to just disseminate the gospel through this couple throughout the world. Mm. I see a, a global calling on this couple's life. Lord, we send them with our blessing.
0: Yes, we do, God.
4: We send them out from underneath our covering, and thank you that you have a place for them in L.A. We pray that you would prepare the right family to receive them. Thank you for blessing us with them.
0: In the book of Ephesians, it says that we may all be filled with the fullness of God. That word, uh, the picture of the fullness of God is a cargo ship that is loaded. And we send you like a cargo ship loaded with the things of God, the goodness of God, the anointing of God from this place to your next place. And you're going to arrive at your port and you're going to be a blessing. In Jesus' mighty name. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Amen. So what I, was, um, what I was seeing today was that I would have you all stand, recognize a place of humility in your life. The Bible says we can humble ourselves lest we, not, lest we be humbled. Humbling yourself is much better. So that the window of grace will open up. But I don't have time to do that. So we'll let Mark do what he's going to do. And it wouldn't surprise me if he was actually teaching on this today. So, let's welcome Mark Coppersmith.
3: smith Computer, guys, uh, I sent you a PowerPoint of a, four photographs. Is, is, is that ready to go? Fire it up. A lot of you guys um, are prone to desperate self-pity. And I found the solution to self-pity is to find someone whose life in a, in a particular moment is worse than yours. Uh, let's have the next slide. Oh, yeah. Whoa. Okay, that's enough. I'm hurting. Just looking at this guy, that's painful. Alright, let's bring up the, uh, message PowerPoint. Now, do y'all, <laughs> okay, let's do one more. Do y'all feel better about your life? Oh, gee. I went to set up the crane and a wind came along. Is that it? Do we have one more? Uh, Listen, I got about 20 of these and I'll send them to you and we can look at them because it is it's really sad what happens to some people and it's really wrong to laugh about it. Wrong, 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 wrong. Okay, uh, last week's message, um, which some of you liked a lot, is in this book which you can get from me afterwards if you want to. And today's message is in that book as well. So, let's jump right in. Last week, we started the series on grace. And we discovered God's plan for us, for how he relates to us, is that he will relate to us relationally and not legally. That he has no desire to have a mediator between him and us, the mediator being the law. He doesn't want you seeing him through the lens of what you ought to do and what you should do and through the lens of your failures. And he also doesn't want you to look at him through the lens of your successes. Jesus took care of your failures and he took care of your successes. God wants intimacy with you. He wants to relate relationally and not legalistically. So that raises a really, really serious question, because every time I talk about this, somebody says, oh, yeah, well, what about the law? What about the law? I mean, God gave the law, so I think you're wrong about your relational conclusion. And, you know, it's a good argument. If we're going to maintain that God's principally interested in a relationship which is not about Behavior, but about intimacy, and then your behavior comes from that intimacy. So your attention is not on your behavior. If that's what he wants, how come the law? Because a big chunk of the Old Testament is the law, and the people were under the law all the time. So, what about the law? Well, to answer that question, we must look at the context in which the law was given. As you study your Bibles, you'll discover over and over again that context has a huge amount to do with how you understand the word. You take something out of context, you're going to reach the wrong conclusion. Context is hugely important. So we need to look at the context for God giving the law. What was the context for God giving the law? What was the immediate context for God giving law? Where did it happen? Mount Sinai, taking people from the, from, from the bondage of Egypt to the promise of the promised land. But we can expand the context and we need to expand the context to really understand the significance of what's going to happen in this time and place. Here's the larger context. God attempted in the Garden of Eden to have a relationship with the man and the woman, which was not based on morality. That's why he told them, don't eat from the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. His intention was to always have your operating system relational and not legal. So he attempted to do that in the garden, and what happened? They blew it. They stepped out from that relationship of uh, pure intimacy, By disobeying him, walking away from him, they began to act independently from him. And sin is nothing but independence from God. Sins are all the actions that come from sin, but sin is merely independence from God. And they did that. So God tries again, and he's continually trying with a people group. First, it was Adam and Eve, and that didn't work. And then he had to start all over and he did the flood, hoping that maybe he could find a righteous family, a righteous man, and we could have that kind of relationship again. And righteous in the Old Testament, the word Sadak, it means to be rightly related to God. It's not first and foremost a moral expression. It's a relational expression. And so he attempted that, but that didn't fail. They stepped away from God. And then he said, Well, if I can't have the whole earth over again uh, through um, Noah and his kids, I'll settle for just a people group. I'll take a, 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 a nation. So he took Israel, 12 tribes. And we know the story. It just gets whittled down and whittled down until there's just a remnant left, until there's nobody left that really lives that way with God, just a handful of people. So what's happening here at Mount Sinai is what I call... God's last big attempt to draw a whole people group into intimacy with himself. This is his last, what I call his last corporate try. This is it. And after this, it's, well, he just never tries it again until Jesus comes. So, let's look at the scene. Here is how it unfolds. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai. Listen to this in the sight of all of the people. What does it mean that God's going to come down in the sight of all of the people? Yeah, they're going to see him. Now, prior to this event, how many people had seen God? One. Who was it? It was Moses. Moses had an intimate relationship with God. Moses said this about himself. I'm the only guy who's ever seen God face to face and lived. That's bragging rights. I saw God face to face, and I'm still here. And now God is saying to Moses, get them ready. In three days, I am going to come in the sight of all the people. What is he offering? What is he offering to the nation of Israel? Exactly the same thing he had with Moses. <laughs> that's, that's unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, that's inc- that's wonderful. You can't get more. God is going to come down and he's going to reveal himself to absolutely everybody so everybody gets to have the same kind of relationship with God that Moses had. Wow! That's the high water mark in the sight of all the people. Nothing less than what, than what Moses has already experienced. Remember Moses... Negotiating with God to get Him to show me Your glory, and then God did, and it just that little flash so transformed Moses that his face actually glowed and he had to hide it. Now God's going to do a, a full-on, full frontal to the people of Israel. Yeah, can't get better. I ruined the image, but I, I did. I, I just completely, completely ruined. Uh, Let's start again. Last week we talked about a life in... um, God is going to reveal himself to the people and everyone gets to see the glory of God and everyone is transformed by the glory of God if they see him. The promise to Moses is the promise to the people. Now, one of the strange instructions that Moses uh, received from God in preparing the people for God's coming is a strange one. And for years, literally years and years, when I read this story, I never understood it. But it's critical to understand. The text says this. After Moses had gone down from the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. This is God's instruction to Moses to tell the people. God is going to come. You're going to see him. He will reveal himself to you. So in the meantime, don't have sex with your spouse. What's that about? Does that strike you as kind of strange? Why would he say that? God is the author of sexuality. These people are married. They're not, they're not committing some sin. Sex is good. It's one of the greatest blessings God gives. Why would he tell them not to do it for three days before he arrives? Anybody. Anybody who hasn't read my book. Why would he give such a strange instruction? He did not want any competing intimacy. Is that profound or what? It gives you an idea of what he intends to happen between himself and his children. This is about intimacy, people. This is about God revealing himself to you. And it's so powerful in experience, you actually glow. Glow. It is a transforming thing to see God as he really is. This is his offer, and he doesn't want anything to compete with it. He's really serious about what's going to happen when he comes in the sight and reveals himself in the presence of all of these people. So let's set the stage. The third day has come. And Exodus 19:16 says this: On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. And the text goes on to say, and everyone in the camp trembled. Duh. Do you think? Come on, think about it. Thunder and lightning, a thick cloud, and a trumpet blast. And the text goes on to say, the earth shook. Trembled, and everyone in the camp trembled. That's an understatement. God hasn't even shown up yet and there's smoke and lightning. God's advanced PR people do such a good job of announcing what's about to happen that their PR and advertising alone has already terrorized the people. He hasn't even arrived yet. The idea... The preamble to his arrival is absolutely, no pun intended, absolute accuracy, earth-shaking. Literally, earth-shaking. And the people trembled. Oh, do you think? And the story continues. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. And Mount Sinai was covered with smoke, Because the Lord descended on it in fire. That's more of his advance work. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. The sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. Now this is really, really important to understand. Just follow this with me. At this point in the Bible, Moses' book describing this incident, at this point in his narrative, he puts the Ten Commandments. So we get the idea, reading this narrative, that chronologically there was God about to appear and all this crazy billowing and wildness and stuff is happening, and then all of a sudden God gives the Ten Commandments. But that isn't the way it went. Moses put the Ten Commandments in this spot in the story in order to highlight them so that they would be preeminent and more significant than all of the other laws and commentaries that he's going to put in later. Do you understand what I'm saying? So the story actually unfolds like this. Moses led the people out of the camp. They stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord was descending on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. If we skip forward from Exodus 19, verse 19, where that ends and we go to... Exodus 20, verse 18 and 19. Listen to how the story reads. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. Skip forward past the insertion of the Ten Commandments. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled in fear. They stayed at a distance and they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Do you see how seamless it is? If you simply lift the Ten Commandments out of there and you read the story as it chronologically unfolded, what you find is that the Ten Commandments didn't come where they are inserted in the, in the text. They came after This incident took place. I'm not making this up. The footnotes in my study Bible say this is what happened. That the chronology works this way. God was coming and his (laughs) advance men were so good at announcing his presence with all of this thunder and lightning and trembling and smoke and fire that when the people saw that, they became so afraid, they said to Moses, We don't want God. He is too frightening. We want you. And then the Ten Commandments are given by God. Any lights going on anywhere? What has just happened when the people said to Moses, When the people said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but do not have God speak to us. What have the people just done? They just rejected God. (laughs) They just rejected God. God was coming to be intimate with his people and to reveal himself to them at the deepest level. And revealed his glory in such a way that they would be changed by that encounter. And they said, we don't want that. Moses, we want you. And God says, okay. And gives them the law. Are you making the connection? Why was the law given? Because the people rejected intimacy with God. See, they didn't... (laughs) This is odd. They didn't become atheists. They didn't say, from now on, there is no God. How could they possibly say that, given the circumstances of his arrival? They didn't say there is no God. They didn't say he isn't good. They didn't say he isn't powerful. They didn't say... He isn't for us. They said, we don't want a face-to-face, intimate relationship with him, but we'll keep everything else. Hello? Now look, what's left if you reject the relationship with him, but you keep his holiness, you keep his power, you keep his protection, and you keep his justice? What's left? The law. See, you're stuck with his holiness. He is who he is. And he's just. And you want his benevolence and you want his protection. You just don't want a relationship with him. So he says, okay. If that's what you want. Here it is. Here's how here's the system. Here's how it's going to work. And you get a mediator. You get an intermediary. You get his holiness at the requirements of the law. But you don't get the ability to keep that law. Because you're not in a relationship with Him. You're in a relationship with the law. Do you get it? This is a tragedy. And this is not God's plan. For humanity. This was a consequence of rejecting an intimate relationship with God. They chose an intermediary. They chose Moses and they got the law. You keep his holiness, you get his standards, you get trying to measure up to who he is, but you don't get his presence and his intimacy. So the very power to keep those laws you have rejected. So you're in deep trouble now. Now, Paul says, the law becomes a curse. Actually, he says, it becomes a source of death. And you will live under that until something saves you from it. You get his holiness without his empowering presence. You get the requirements of his holiness without the ability to follow them. The consequence of rejecting intimacy and relationship with God is a life under law. It is religion. The only thing you're left with when you reject relationship with him, but you want the rest of him, are the requirements of his holiness. And that is a life under law. This puts the people of Israel in the same position as all of the rest of the world's religions, under the requirements of a perfect God without the the ability to measure up. It is a life of continual striving. It is a life of continual insecurity. You will be as happy as your last success and as fearful and insecure as your last failure. You will live never knowing if you will ever go to heaven. And that's the way all the other religions in the world work. Some of them cope with the problem and that despair by saying, well, you get a thousand tries. You just keep coming back as someone else. And maybe in a thousand tries you can live a perfect life and then you can enter in. Good luck. People, this is a desperate way to live. This is despair. This is fear. And someone comes along and says, well, if you just do more and try harder, you'll be fine. And that's the treadmill of religion. And they all say that. And what really breaks my heart is within side Christendom, In our camp, we say that too. You just do more and try harder, you'll be okay. There's no hope in it. There's no peace. There's no assurance of salvation. There's no rest. Come to me, all you, who are weary and tired of the effort to measure up to me and overcome your independent spirits and your independence, and I will give you rest. That's why they call it the good news. That's the good news. There's rest for your soul. You can go to bed at night not worrying. You can wake up in the morning and feel innocent like a child. The good news is that this legal system was never God's plan for us. Grace is his solution to this problem. And it is the best news in human history. And if you don't value it, you don't understand. If it doesn't rock your world, you don't know yourself well enough. We need a Savior. We don't need a Savior one time to buy an insurance policy. We need a Savior every day. I mean, we need to breathe grace. We don't need to say, that was nice at the cross 2,000 years ago. I'm fine. It's all good. We need a Savior every day. We need to be washed in the blood every day. We need to be reassured every day. Because we fail every day. Yeah, we just fail every day. At our best. Listen, at your best moment, you're pathetic. (laughs) I have struggled hard to figure out in my life if I've ever had a pure motive. I haven't come up with one yet. Everything I think I did that was good, if I examine it and I tend to, which is kind of sick. I find that my motives are always mixed and there's always something selfish in there somewhere. People, I need a Savior every minute of every day and so do you. And we have one. Grace. 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 It's just all over the place. And it's got to make you happy or you don't understand it. It's your reason for joy. It's your reason for celebration. It's your reason for peace. It's your reason for rest. You get to go and tug on God's coat and yank at him anytime you want and say, I need you, Dad. You have access. You can crawl up. You know, the thing I like best about my little dog, Pete, When I love him the most is when he jumps up and crawls into my lap and just assumes he has a right to be there. He always does it. And in the middle of my prayer time, I'll be like praying to the Lord and and I'll be journaling something and he always picks that moment. Maybe the devil sent him. I don't know. But he picks that moment to jump up and just, he comes and sits on my Bible. He has done that. This, This one right here. And my prayer journal, so I can't move my hand, and he curls up and he just kind of cuddles with me, and I find myself unable to say no to him. My dog is an idol. It's sad. I mean, I, God, we're in the middle of this great moment, and Peaches comes and just ruins it and loves, and I love him so much because he comes to me. He wants to be with me. That's how God feels about you. Only a billion times more intense. You are his pleasure. You're the prize set before him, the reason he went to the cross. And that's all grace. Grace. And if that doesn't rock your world, I don't know what will. That's it. You have access. You have... Right, childhood in Him. Let's close our eyes just right where we are. And let's receive some of this. Jesus, we are so thankful to you. Because you saw the problem. And you said, I'll be the solution. And I wonder, I wonder if your father looked at you and said, Do you really want to do this? Do you understand what it's going to mean? Do you know a moment will come where I will have to separate myself from you and I will have to judge you and let you die? Do you know how you're going to feel? Jesus said to his father, no, there's a there's a greater joy. There's a joy set before me and it's having them home. I want to save them. And God said, you're my son and you please me. Do it. Father, please, by your Holy Spirit, move in this room right now and begin administering your grace to your people, to your kids. Remove their anxiety. Wow, there's so many people in this room right now, you have doubted, really doubted your salvation. Really doubted it because it was too good to be true and you knew you didn't deserve it. Right now, the Holy Spirit wants to minister the assurance of your salvation to you. Holy Spirit, please touch them with the assurance that they belong to you. They belong to the Father, bought by Jesus. Lord, there's some that has such a a problem with worth and belonging. And your grace is the answer to that. Administer it, Lord. Belonging. Belonging and worth. Listen to him speak it to you. What does he say to you that assures you of your belonging and your worth to him? Some of you live under the accusation and the condemnation of the enemy, always pointing out your failures. And so you've become so discouraged. You know you can't win, you know you can't be good enough. And God says, that's not the issue. He says, that's not the issue. That's not the right question. We took care of that. It's not about your goodness. It's about my goodness. You're not the issue. I'm the issue. Now live a life of joy. Now celebrate me and live a life of joy and freedom. From anxiety, accusation, condemnation, shame, worry, alienation, rejection, distance, Live free of all of those. Because it's grace. It's grace. Your grace. He gives it to you. One of the words used for salvation in the New Testament is the same word that's used for healing. Isn't that interesting? The same word that describes your eternal security and your salvation also describes your physical healing and your emotional healing. And grace isn't just what I've just described, if that isn't good enough. Grace is also that he comes right now, right into the circumstances of your life. And he works to change things. We don't always get it when we ask. Sometimes we wait. But delay is not denial sometimes we learn the most amazing things while we're waiting. But listen, in this church, we really believe God's interactive. It's about an encounter. It's not about ideas. So you can come with whatever problem you have that's plaguing you. You can come and you can receive prayer and you can put yourself in a position to encounter His grace. And if you need that for any reason at all, no matter how trivial, trivial in your own eyes, it doesn't matter. How about you just come to him like my dog jumps up and ruins my prayer time? How about you just come to him and say, I'm in need here, Lord. I want to encounter you. And I want somebody to lay hands on me and pray for me and ask for more of grace in my life. Because I need it. And who doesn't? So if that's you, any problem at all, once you come right now? Up to the front. And uh, we're going to worship and stay in the presence and enjoy him. But we're also going to administer grace to you. So come on. Any need at all. Prayer team, come on up. And let's receive.